When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is the Analyzing Anfield podcast on the Blood Red channel, bringing you the best tactical and statistical analysis of Liverpool FC. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Analyzing Anfield, your tactics and analytics podcast, courtesy of the Blood Red channel. I'm Josh Williams and I'm joined by Mo Stewart. Mo, we have a victory to talk about, mate. Honestly, hey, I'm not just saying this, but it was my first trip to Anfield in 2023 and it was such an enjoyable experience. And yeah, for reasons we're going to come on to, it was a great win. It's always great to be here, but there was it wasn't just what we did, it was how we did it. And yeah, I definitely walked away from that ground with a good buzz that I've had for most of this week as well. Yeah, I agree, mate. I was there myself, actually, so it's a shame we didn't bump into each other. Oh. Um, but yeah, it's for me, it, was, it wasn't It was just the fact that we picked up a result, because we've picked up a few results here and there. I think for me, I thought it was our best performance since, I don't know when, to be honest. I mean, Manchester City coming to mind when we beat them 1-0, but that did feel like more of a... It just this is a more of a performance that suggests now we can use that performance again. Whereas the game against City, it felt specific to City because City allowed us to play in that way, and this looks more like, for me at least, a a positive sign for the rest of the season if we can keep the same form going. Oh, agreed. And I mean, the thing about the City game we have to remember is is that no one else plays like them. <laughs> so if we do if we do well what it takes to be them it doesn't necessarily get to translate to the other 18 teams but you're right I think there was lots there's been lots of talk since the game we've been looking a little bit more like us and I have to say I agree and there was shoots of recoveries from some players there was obviously for Cody Gakpo's first goal for Liverpool and we saw the instant uh, um, re- reaction that that gave him in terms of how it sparked him so there's lots to think that this can be something upon which to build, definitely. Yeah, I mean, if, if we touch on the numbers attached to the game, that's that's what I was really pleased about. Obviously, if it felt this way anyway when I was watching the match. But after it, you look at the, the expected goals and things like that, it was the kind of win that we've become accustomed to Liverpool delivering, really. Yeah. But this season, we just haven't really seen too many of them. So, for example, go on. I was just going to say, how many shows have we said that we haven't had a game like this and now we finally got a game like this? Yeah, that's one of the reasons that not that long ago we had a talk about like what to expect for the remainder of the season and I was really down on the team and I was kind of just like, like the season off basically and this is Liverpool now until the summer and things like that. And I'm, I haven't changed my mind on that yet. But one of the reasons I was so in that camp is because the numbers for Liverpool's performances was just not good and it wasn't a case of us being unlucky or anything like that we we hadn't been done by referees or poor this and that it was just we were just looking like a bad team in the numbers basically um 
But if you look at the numbers attached to it, the Everton performance. <clears throat> Liverpool took 15 shots. Everton only took six. And in terms of the expected goals, Liverpool posted 2.2. And Everton posted 0.3. Now that is a proper dominant 2-0 win. In most weeks, if, if life is normal, all things go according to plan. You're going to win that game most weeks. If you replay that game a hundred times, you win winning pretty much all the time. Uh, and it's been a while since Liverpool posted numbers like that in two weeks consistently, for example. Um, and obviously we've got the chance to now go into Newcastle United, which obviously won't be easy. But the very fact that we've performed like that against Everton and it was fully deserved and things like that yeah. is a major positive for me. Oh, for me as well. I think... This is the point where we have to add the little bit of temperance to the fact that this wasn't a very good Everton team. I mean, I actually, I, I noticed this when I was watching the game and then I kind of watched it back. Until the hour mark, Everton did not have the ball for more than 20 seconds at a time. And that's considering the fact that Jordan Pickford has taken about 10 or 12 seconds over his goal kicks every time. They just didn't have the ball for long enough to do anything. And part of that is down to their passivity, part of it's down to their poor play. But a lot of it is down to how we approach the game. And so many of the signs that I thought, again, were repeatable, we'll go into on the numbers. Some parts of it, you wonder how much of that was Everton. So, for example, that was the fastest start we've made to a game, I think, in a long time. And personally, coming into it, my mindset was of the fact that Liverpool have been making a lot of mistakes. They've been giving goals away. So as long as you don't do that, that gives you a platform on which to build. But Liverpool didn't approach the game like that. They were like, nah, nah, this is Everton. We can dominate Everton. We know how to do this. And they did it. And I was very pleased to see that. Like, if you look at the number for pressures, like I don't, I don't get access to them very often because I'm not signed into StatsBomb, but every now and then I get a little nugget. And I saw the pressures for this game. And... You've got five players over double figures, which in when you compare it to where we've been previously, it's been way off. And the fact that those included Jordan Henson and Fabinho is a real good sign as well because it looked like the, the, the time out of the team has given them what it needed to give them. We'll have to wait and see if this continues, but based on that game, that's what it looked like. Yeah, it... As you said, it was um, it was a case of like lots of Liverpool related things that we've become accustomed to over the years being restored. Really, um, you mentioned Everton there, though. I must admit, I was a little bit. I mean, I wasn't, I wasn't, but I was a bit disappointed with Everton. I expected more from um, Sean Dyche's second game. We've just beat top of the league, uh, Merseyside derby. I thought they'd cause us more problems than they did. So, although it's just, it's only Everton and they're like 18th in the table, Liverpool should be beating them or whatever, I still thought it'd be... I I was up in the ground and I was kind of just thinking, this is going to be horrible, this. <laughs> I thought it was going to be a really dogged, stubborn game where we're breaking down a block and then really highlighting our frailties by playing direct and maximising set pieces. Yeah, and to be fair to him, he nearly scored from one set piece. I think they had the post. But other than that, really, I said at the towards the end of the game for the person I was with, um, I you would have you would have thought I think that Frank Lampard was in charge of that team. 
yeah not not nice definitely and that whole approach was really strange i think the the, the funny thing about that um set piece chance that nearly came their best chance or their closest they came to a goal it did produce a goal for liverpool <laughs> and it is quite ironic that considering how much we went on about set pieces, me personally, quite a few about the Everton and their strength for set pieces. We got two goals because the thing that I forgot to mention last week is the thing that they're really bad at is conceding goals from counterattacks. They are by far the worst in the league. That's eight goals they are now they've conceded. The next worst is actually us with five, but no one else has conceded more than four all season long. So they're twice as bad as nearly everybody else conceding on a counter-attack and you can see why based on that game but I was like you I thought they would be able to take strength from our frailties but they didn't seem to be able to escape their own I wonder how much of that was down to not having Calvert-Lewin available because he was very key to their play against Arsenal and not only did they not have Calvert-Lewin available but they had a young kid up front who Admittedly, Sean Dyche had probably given him a free hit to say, just go and cause some trouble. But it's not what you want. You want an ex experienced guy. And to be fair to Joe Gomez, he kind of munched him for the game. And he didn't do anything. Analyzing Anfield on the Blood Red Channel. Yeah, no, he didn't. Um, but you mentioned, you mentioned Joe Gomez there. I actually thought, because you, you touched earlier on how. Um, you know, Liverpool should be dominating this game and things like that. We made Everton look bad and things like that. Some of that obviously stems from Everton's camp and just not being good enough. But at the same time, I do think a lot of what Liverpool did um, made Everton look bad, really. Um, and I think that the Liverpool's centre-backs in particular, I thought, were quite interesting during the game because Sean Dyche has obviously set Everton up in this 4-3-3 in this kind of mid-block type thing. It looks like a four-five-one at times if you're up against the stronger side, and Everton have been for two consecutive weeks now. Um, but one thing Arsenal didn't do that Liverpool did is when Matip. I mean, we know what Matip's like, don't we? When Matip was on the ball and he was unattended, rather than just making a simple, predictable pass, he was like, "Right, I'll carry it then," and he he made Everton's centre mids commit by stepping out. Um, and we, we, that's like a, a thing we used to see in any way. But one of the reasons I thought it was a deliberate tactic was we saw Gomez do it quite a lot, I thought. Yeah. Um, so Massive in the game posted a total of 66 carries. That's the second most that he's posted in any Premier League or Champions League game this season. And in terms of Gomez, Gomez covered about 280 yards in progressive distance with the ball at his feet. Um, and that's more than any of his previous 27 appearances this season. So I think it was a deliberate tactic, personally, yeah. to kind of disrupt this new block that Dyche is obviously still working on, but Everton haven't really got to grips with yet. Yeah, I agree 100%. And I think it was one of the one of the things I'm always impressed about with Joel Matip is when he does that, he very, very rarely loses the ball. And we've seen him do it for so long now. The teams have had time to game plan against him and set traps for him. But like, I'd say, I don't know the specific numbers, but it feels like somewhere close to like seven or eight out of 10 times, the ball finds a red shirt and he finds a red shirt in a position to do damage. So it's always going to be effective if they allow him to do it. 
the stuff with Gomez though is interesting because it does necessarily go against his natural game. Normally when he gets the ball in space, he tries to kind of fire it in ahead to the fullback to give him almost like a lead in to run at the defence. But yeah, right. He's bringing it forward himself. I think a big part of that as well, though, is the renewed confidence in the solidity behind them. Because you can't really bring the ball out if you're a centre-back if you're worried about losing the ball and being counter-attacks on. And that didn't really happen in this game. So I think it's one of those things where some one part of the team being repaired has allowed another part of the team to flourish. And this is how these little bits start to build up and how positive play starts to return. Yeah, well, I think I think Liverpool's right side in particular looked a lot more normal to this game. Uh, I think after the match, Klopp referenced Henderson and said that he was a one-man pressure machine. Um, <laughs> I do think he benefited from the the whole mid-block thing, by the way. Not necessarily expected to cover the whole pitch when he's pressing, but instead expected to cover a smaller region. It but basically it makes him look better. It makes him look less. Um, all over the place almost um, and I think Trent did well behind him I thought he was really good actually up against I think it was McNeil yeah. I think he kept him quiet won a lot of his duels and then further forward I thought Salah was, was a bit of a nightmare for, for the opposition to be honest as well I thought he was threatening him behind <clears throat> he was unpredictable on the ball scored a goal and just generally looked a bit looked quite sharp I thought so that's an incredibly important side of the pitch for Liverpool considering the value over there. Salah and Trent are massively important and the defensive contributions, the cover and the Henderson offers is has to work as well. And I think again for the first time in a while I feel like it did work. Yes. Um and on top of that, again just tying in with this old habits retaining type thing. I think the goal from a corner from an opposition corner it feels very Liverpool, but we haven't yes. seen it for ages. Right. And on top of that we had a really combative midfield, you know, we, we were keen when it comes to like second balls and things like that. So it did feel very throwback, I thought. You know, it was. I mean, I, I call it complimentary football, but it's when it's almost like, like I just said, when one part of the team is working well, it allows other parts to flourish. And I think Jordan Henderson was, a, was really key to that because it was almost as if within his remit, like you say, he was a pressing monster. But it was very much it was like your job is to get Salah and Trent back to being Salah and Trent. Because we said we've all seen that triangle between the three of them being such the bedrock of so much of our success. And once that part was lost, it affected both of them. Now, you saw it back to its best last night. I mean, I'm looking here at the heat map of Jordan Henderson, and it's literally a triangle around that side of the pitch. Like he very, very rarely ventures the other side of the center circle. His job was over there and he did it to perfection. And I think that helped the other two as well because Bicetic was a lot more advanced than he's been in previous games. But there were times when him and Fabinho were very much like a double six and they were just locking down the centre of the pitch. And again, once you have confidence that your teammates are going to be able to do their job, it allows you to have more confidence that you can do your own. And it was, as I say, it was spreading across the pitch. Yeah. Uh, one player that we want to touch on uh, is Cody Gapo. Obviously, you mentioned him earlier, but without allowing the narrative to be shaped too much by the fact that he scored, aside from the goal, 
how what did you think of his overall performance? Because I, I I thought similar to Brighton, really. I thought he was. It looks like he's kind of getting it. It looks like he's he is getting to grips with things and playing like Firmino was hard, mate. And he's in. He's doing his best, and he's a different type of player. But in certain moments, we've saw how his differences can almost benefit Liverpool. Like when he beats a man, if he beats you, he is gone. He's he's got big long strides, and he's he's a really good ball carrier. Firmino doesn't necessarily offer that, so he is different to him. And he's doing his best impression, mm-hmm. but I do think lately, and especially in this game, I thought he was he was much better. He was, and I think in terms of that, when he's on the break, that appreciation for a pass forward, we saw it with the chance he created for Nunes. He laid it on perfectly for him, and at the right time as well. So he's used to leading counterattacks in that way. But I do think you saw the jump when he got his goal in terms of how he was feeling about himself, how how much belief he had that he could go out and affect the game, it raised. But the reason he got there was because of his hard work. And I've noticed it every game, his link-up play is getting better. He's getting more used to the runs of his teammates. So he's able to put the balls in places where they're more likely to get it rather than having to go into a 50-50 to get the ball. He's getting better with that. I think the other thing I really like as well is ground duels. He's starting to win more of them now. Like He won, what, 7 out of 11 against Everton. And remember, that was a feature of some of those first games. He, he felt a little bit timid, a little bit lightweight, like he wasn't uns- he was unsure of himself or he was getting there late. Now he's getting there on time. He's doing the work. And once you do that kind of stuff, the benefits come. And yes, the I think the XG on that particular shot of his was something like 0.6. So it's an easy chance, but yeah. that's what you need. That's what you need to get yourself off and running. And I think the creation of those quote-unquote easy chances is again another function of the team working because I think if you, if you well, I mean, I'd say uh, with XG it's difficult because like sometimes you'll see a position, a shot from right in the middle of the center circle and the XG will still be 0.08 or something. But I'd say 0.1, that normally means it's a chance where you either do score or you should score. Everton had one of 0.1, that was the Tom Davis header at the end. Liverpool had seven. So, yeah, again, if we were getting good quality chances that only comes from good quality football, build up, progressive build-up play. And I think one of the things I liked about the, the attack in general, all three of them now look like they know what each other want to do. There was connection between Salah and Gakpo, between Gakpo and Nunes, and between Nunes and Salah. They all had that little period. So now that that is established, we can start mixing in some of the other guys who had just happened to be back from injury. And it can only it can only increase the, our, our options up front and our ability to actually score goals. Analyzing Anfield on the Blood Red Channel. Yeah, well, again, it was it was interesting to see Gakpo deployed through the middle and Nunes deployed on the left, even though last season for Benfica and PSV it was roles reversed, so it is definitely kind of like a work in progress type thing um, and as I said, playing like Firmino is hard, <laughs> really, really hard and I think Gakpo keeps talking about like, I've seen a few comments of his, where he's, he's talking about goals and assists, he's, co- he's conscious that he's not delivering too many goals and assists, but what he needs to remember with Firmino is Firmino could play 
brilliantly well and not score or assist. It's it's never been a thing with Firmino. Yeah. Obviously, it's nice if he does, but the, the art of playing like Firmino, a, a lot of it just is like receiving the ball in real precious spaces when you've got when you're surrounded by opponents. The first like two or three seconds are just purely about keeping the ball. Yes. And then the next action is about making the next pass forward. That's what Firmino's so good at doing. He's so good at just keeping the ball, making the ball stick when it just shouldn't be allowed to stick and it's in yeah. really dangerous areas. And then like almost maneuvering maneuvering himself so that he's now facing the goal and he can play to one of the forwards ahead of him who, who would ideally run in behind. That's what Firmino's been so good at doing. Um, and Gakpo... In, in in his first few games, looked like he was uncomfortable with the pressure from behind. Mm. Um, but against Everton, he did he did look more like Firmino basically in the way that he moved, in the way that he linked to play, connected things in the final third, and um, kind of provided a bit of a link when Liverpool were on the counter attack, yes. letting the moves get finished by Salah and Nunes, but around like the centre circle type area is where he was providing the link between all three of them. Um, so as I said, it's hard, and if, if the expectation is for him to become a kind of new take on Firmino, he'll he will do well to do that. It'd be interesting to see if, if that's the plan moving forward. Klopp wants to stick with the four three three, even though he's got completely different players. But um, it's going to be interesting to see if that works moving forward. Because as I said, he's a difficult player to uh, replace. He is, and I mean, I think that's probably the best way to approach it to try not to do exact, but try to cover most of the good things you get from him, but add a little wrinkle in as well. Because if you think about 12 months ago, that's kind of what was happening uh, when Jota was playing in that position. And even to a certain extent when Sadio Mane was playing in that position towards the end of the season. It was most of the Bobby stuff, but with an extra little twist. And I think that's how you evolve as a side. I think you can't just completely change how you do things just because you've got different players. It has to be a smooth kind of evolution and transition. And there are ways of doing that without losing those great things. But as you keep saying, it's hard to do the Bobby stuff. So, and I mean, I personally, I think I, I, I'd have been surprised if Klopp had said to Cody Gakpo when he signed him, you're coming in and you're going to be playing most of your time as centre forward this season. He might have said, we see you as a centre forward in the future, but Gakpo probably didn't expect the future to be like two weeks. <laughs> yeah uh, one other player that I want to speak about just before we move on from the derby is obviously uh, Stefan Bersetic I think it was nice to see to see him prosper on the pitch made his side derby and he stood up you know you wouldn't have thought he was he was 18 based on this performance but what did you think of him? Oh I loved it I loved the performance and this was him getting to show what he's really about I think well, I've praised him in previous shows for his discipline of position and his um, vision within his passing, always been able to find another red shirt. Against Everton, we were able to see a little bit more of his flair, a little bit more of his skill in terms of deceiving opponents, getting away from people. And he, he shows me something new every game. And it's hard to remember, this guy started out as a centre-half. He came through as a centre-half. And you're seeing him striding forward with the ball and leading counterattacks, and you're just thinking, "Wow, what else could he learn to do?" But yeah, I was I was so pleased with him. I mean, I think it's what five starts in a row now. 
which is, I think he must be surely one of the youngest players we've ever had to start five games in a row. And with Real Madrid around the corner, you're kind of expecting it to still play. And that's that's the level of the guy. And yeah, I'm really pleased that he was able to show a little bit of what he can do. I think in a way, it helped Fabinho as well. A little bit of their tandem where one of them had the things that the other one didn't. And they were able to compensate quite well. Fabinho didn't feel like he had to do everything. And as I said, with Henderson more focused on the, uh, the right-hand side triangle, they kind of worked out who was covering where and when. So everyone had their zones. No one felt like they were being restricted. And it just looked like it worked. And we said on previous shows, the improvement in midfield was all well and good, but we had to see it with all different personnel. So again, the fact that he was able to combine with Fabinho and Henderson, as well as he was able to combine with Cater and Thiago, it's a very, very good side for me. Yeah, I think, as I said, he, he, you wouldn't have thought he was he was 18. I thought he, he put himself about, did the basic pretty well. Um, elements of composure on, in, in possession of the ball, and you can see he's really technical and things like that. Um, he obviously was deployed as eight as well, which is interesting because um, there's been some question marks as to whether he's just a six, but he, he played as the eight pretty well, I thought. Um, but what, one thing that I do want to touch on, which is interesting, and this is not me being harsh and like that, this is just me being, I suppose, a little bit critical of, of what I've seen, because I was, I was in the ground, as I said, and I really liked his performance. I come away from it talking about him and things like that. But if you do look at his numbers attached to the game, um, I expected a bit different, specifically when it comes to keeping the ball, at least. Um, so he, his pass completion was was under seventy seven percent, um, seventy six point five percent. He he kept the ball right. Now, considering he played in the middle of the park, I would I just felt like it was higher than that when I was watching the yeah. game. And even though he played pretty much the full game, he only attempted thirty four passes. Right. Yeah. Now. The reason that's kind of interesting, if you like, is based on last season. I mean, this is kind of stupid in a way because I'm comparing them to Thiago here. So this is not intended to be a direct comparison or anything like that. But they, pl- they occupied the same role in terms of that left-sided midfield role. So of all the Premier League games that Thiago started last season, um, he completed less than 80% of his passes once in in one game. Funny enough, that was against Devon. <laughs> um, and in terms of like attempting passes and, and getting on the ball, his fewest number of passes in any game attempted that he started was 46. And in that game, he, he only played one half. He played the first half and came off. Obviously, Bessetic only attempted 34 in 89 minutes against Everton. So what I'm getting at there is he's obviously still got a long way to go, still got a lot to learn and things like that. He's not a ball dominant player yet. Uh, Thiago obviously is. Mm. Um funny enough why Alden wasn't. And I don't really know <laughs> overly where I'm specifically going with this, but, but what I'm kind of getting at I suppose is even though he's got lots of potential and things like that, his output has still got a long way to go and things and um, if he's going to refine what it is 
to be that left side of the for Liverpool, which in my opinion is kind of a controlling presence. He can he can still do a lot with, with that beyond what we saw in the derby, which in itself felt good as, as it was. Yeah, no, I agree. I think it is, it, it is something that you need to flag up because it is definitely a difference. One thing I would say, though, part of the reason why I've been concerned with Liverpool's midfield in previous months is because how much Thiago is dominating the ball. Because in yeah. all of those numbers, you'll see that Fabinho and Henderson or whoever else plays with him is very, very low. And it's like, for a team, oh, obviously sometimes it works for us, but if you're an opponent, if you can shut down Thiago, it's pretty much a lot of the game done. Whereas yeah. now, it does feel a little bit more even. Because yes, Bacic's numbers were low, but Fabinho's and Henderson's were up. So it's like, it was being more shared around. And again, and I, I don't know whether or not this was him deferring to the senior players, whether this was part of the tactic and him being released further up the field. I don't know. But I think it's something that if it continues, it becomes something. But I do think regardless, he is going to have to improve on that just simply as the nature of having to play in his team. And I think he will. I mean, again, in terms of where he, his game is now compared to being where he was not very long ago, we're seeing big jumps here. So I have no reason to believe why having spending this concerted to spell in the team, that's not going to help those jumps get bigger and more frequent. Yeah, I agree. It's 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 not necessarily like a, a problem really in any way or anything like that. It's more just an interesting talking point, I suppose, considering the dynamics of that left side late role and what it's been specifically under Thiago and what it looked like with percentage. Because I think if you asked a lot of Liverpool fans, they would suggest that they almost preferred Bissetic there simply because Liverpool looked more combative and, and compact and assured and things like that when in reality he's still nowhere near Thiago in my opinion obviously but that's to be expected um, he's learning from the best in that sense Analyzing Anfield on the Blood Red Channel but yeah, we'll we'll move away from the good news derby anyway. Hopefully we can keep that, that form up ahead of Newcastle, which we will talk about in a sec. But before we do, we have obviously news surrounding Ian Graham. Um, we touched on this a couple of weeks ago, a couple of months ago maybe, when, his, when news was announced of his resignation. And that's coming at the end of the season. He's been at Liverpool for 10 years or so. Established Liverpool's data science department from scratch. The big stats guy behind the scenes and he was leaving. And we were concerned and we spoke about this. And we now know that he's going to be replaced internally by Will Spearman. Um, Mo, have you got any thoughts on Spearman? Do you you know much about him? Because I know a lot of people don't. (laughs) This is a good idea. This is a good plan. (laughs) I'll say that again in case <laughs> my first thought was that this was a good idea because for starters we know his qualities because we've seen it firsthand and I think a lot of times when there's a lot of upheaval within the spectrum as much as many of the key people who've got us here we can keep hold of the better so the idea that Will Spearman's staying within the building his experience and expertise is still going to be there means that not only do we keep that, 
but it suggests that we aren't completely diverging away from how we've done things previously, which was a lot of what our fears were around this kind of drain. So yeah. that's the first thing that's good, that I think is a good idea. The second part is, again, is the chemistry, the relationships. Who has to, or who is listening to whom and how much? And that's something that's been a concern because, again, as I've said on previous shows, we don't really know who's doing what with whom. And we don't really know all of those things. But one thing that I do know about Will Spearman is that a lot of the stuff that he's implemented, the pitch control, all of those kind of stuff, those are all almost elements that go to the coaching team. So he's going to have had a lot of discourse with Klopp and with the coaching team. So we know that there's going to have a relationship already there. It also suggests that it, it suggests that it's also quite a good one. The fact that Spearman has seen what's going on, heard the rumours around about people leaving because they haven't been given the tools to perform their job anymore. I, I put the air quotes because it's not an official quote. It's lots of, uh, this is what's being suggested. Yeah. But if he, Will Spearman's happy to take on the role, then maybe that suggests that some of those are wider than yeah, I agree. It's it's interesting, and for me, it is definitely good news. It's positive news. Uh, as you say, we've had concerns about whether Liverpool is still going to be data driven. I still have some of those concerns simply because Ward's resignation, Julian Ward's resignation, is still weird. Um, and we were coupling that in with Ian Graham's resignation, but the fact that Spearman's agreed to take over. And there's no kind of hesitation there or anything like that. And he's not leaving as well. I had heard rumours personally that he might have been leaving too. Which I, which is one of the reasons I was quite firm on the um, Liverpool losing the data-driven identity a couple of months back. So the fact he's taken the job is a, a positive for me. Um, it does suggest that he's got reason to stay. It does suggest that he's going to be listened to and things like that. Um I still think Liverpool seems to be undergoing some kind of weird change. I don't know what it is, but getting we don't have a sporting director at the minute. Klopp seems to be doing more of the recruitments. But as I said, the fact that Spearman is, is staying there internally is is a good sign. Um, so that's one to watch. And it seems like who he is, I mean, he's absolute genius, genuinely. Compared to the likes of us, more no offence, but... I know. It's just a different level, mate. I couldn't even have a conversation with the guy, I don't think. Um, like, he's... I mean, I don't know how much people know about him. You see, he, I mean, he's got a doctorate, PhD in philosophy at, at Harvard, which in itself is ridiculous. Um, and he is a bit of a pioneer in the sense that pitch console, like you've just mentioned there, is his creation. That the pitch console didn't exist as a, as a model before Spearman. Um, so the, the way, for example, Graham is a pioneer in the sense that he was essentially first, like 2006, yeah, 2005, to be like a scientist working in football. Spearman is late in that sense because he didn't really get involved with sport until like 2015, 16-ish. But he's a pioneer in the sense that as soon as he did get involved with the sport, his kind of first project was like really, really, you know, it, it had never been done before. And what it basically consists of is, I don't know how many of our listeners have played football manager, but imagine a football manager match engine now, bird's eye view from above, and you're just looking down at counters. You're not looking at like 
and specifically designed particularly fancy and like that it just counters from above and it's like a tactics mode I suppose Spearman's pitch control model um, uses tracking data which nobody previously really knew what to do with because it's just positional coordinates really that's kind of all it is Spearman used those positional coordinates to create a match engine like that which highlights red if you control space and highlights blue if the opposition controls space and highlights white if the space is kind of uncertain if you like and it just shows the impact of how certain runs open up spaces close spaces positioning opens up spaces or close spaces where Allison should be at all times what passes are valuable what passes are valuable what players should do in certain moments in terms of like the most valuable decision they could make based on like so many different possibilities wherever they are on the field all of this stuff is um, Spearman's work and since then since he first kind of presented about this work in 2016 lots of people have built upon it and created their own models Barcelona have have done it and things like that it's difficult to recreate for I mean I couldn't recreate it because I even if I knew how to I haven't got tracking data really so you, you need all the, all the tools to do it and Liverpool eventually gave him a job in 2018 and basically said to him listen keep working on that pitch console stuff and, and complete your work here and um, as well as doing other stuff so over the years, he's been Liverpool's lead data scientist. He's now been at the club since 2018. Um, and he's now the head of the department. So I've got no issues with it. I think he's... I think it's great, that he, great news that he's staying, basically. Yeah, it is. And the exciting thing is for the idea that now that he is in charge, maybe he's been empowered to look for further and find new innovations that we can't even conceive of yet because that's the thing when you are part of a team but the ultimate head is elsewhere then they're the people who are ultimately deciding what's delivered to the coaches what's delivered to uh, um, Edwards and or Julian Ward whereas once Spearman's in control he can have to say over what he thinks is the most important part and who knows what new metrics we might find out of this but it's it's a way of Liverpool maximising one of the assets that they have within them. And we haven't been good at that in the recent few, in the recent past, particularly in the boardroom. So again, it's I feel like some people in the comments might feel like we're over-egging how important all of this stuff is. But I think we won't see the benefits of it until the future because it's going to be about how this working relationship continues with him and Klopp and whoever comes in. And one more word on the director of football, sports and director, however you want to position it. The fact that we are now starting to hear names, such as Paul Mitchell, suggests that there is going to be someone in the near future and it's not just going to be club, which is good news. Yeah, well, one of the interesting things about Spearman, I think, is that I think since assuming his role, I think Graham has, also, has always leaned towards recruitment as, as being his kind of specialty, if you like specialist field and all that stuff. I think he's been focused on analysing players his whole career, really. I get the impression that Spearman has, Spearman's influence has been more on the tactical side, I think. Um, 
I think his pitch control stuff can can have an impact on tactics and and tactical innovations and things like that. And I wrote a piece on him during the week. Actually, you can check me Twitter for that if you want to read it. Sent out a newsletter too. Um, but just little details from his work, for example, in terms of like, like um, I think he he, he did a, a piece once on like assessing how long it takes opponents to control the ball to actually get the ball under control. Um, and be, if you if you're facing a team of of ten outfield players, and you know you know how long it takes each of them to control the ball on average, you can target the guy who takes the longest. <laughs> yeah, yeah. In the present sense, um, so I think a lot of Liverpool's really subtle tactical tweaks over the years that are maybe different to other teams or or whatever mm-hmm. could st- easily stem from from the data science department, but um. The frustrating thing with this is we're never really going to know because they, they just want to keep everything secret because it's kind of like um, it's like nuclear warfare, mate. Like, they don't want driving clubs to know anything about what they're doing. It's secret, it's top secret stuff. So, we're just left kind of um, taking educated guesses, really, and uh, left in the dark almost. I know, but I mean, as long as it's working for us, then I'm happy to be <laughs> in the dark, isn't it? <laughs> no, yeah, that's true. Um, so yeah, we'll we'll leave Spearman there. But just for, for anyone who does want to know any more about him, I will be appealing on um, Redman TV this week. To I mean, I've been doing it each week anyway. I've been doing like a new thing, but this week one of our topics is Spearman. So we'll, we'll, it'll be a full episode dedicated to him. So if you want to know more about him, check that one out. Analyzing Anfield on the Blood Red Channel. Just a brief word on Newcastle United, mate, who are currently in fourth, and whether Liverpool can achieve fourth by the end of the season, and, and you know, is that still out of reach or whatever? Well, I wouldn't call it out of reach. I would call it difficult. Um, <laughs> but I think we're in a situation now where we can maximise the effects of the game on Monday night by doubling it up against Newcastle. Because if we do go to St. James's and get three points, suddenly the gap between us is six points with a game in hand. Although I should still point out that game in hand is a Stamford Bridge. We can't pretend like it's an automatic three points because we haven't beaten Chelsea in nine minutes in a long time. But anyway, I think in terms of where they are as a team, they are they have started to... I wouldn't quite call it tail off, maybe stagnate. It's probably a fairer way. They are still unbeaten on this long unbeaten run in the league since we beat them. But they've won one and drawn five of their last I, I I actually can't believe their defensive record. Have you seen how many they've conceded? Yeah, it is, it is ridiculous. Liverpool it, have conceded more than twice as many. More than double the amount of Newcastle. Yes. Yes. And most teams have, to be honest. That's true. That is true. They've been very, very solid. However, I do think that they can be got at because Bournemouth haven't been scoring a whole load of goals and they scored against them. West Ham have had struggles up front. They scored against them. Uh, Admittedly, Bournemouth's goal was from a set-piece, but then, hey, we've been very good at set-piece goals and we've got Bobby and maybe Van Dijk back, which will definitely help with that. So... They can be got at in the right way, I think. And also, the thing with Newcastle, 
and I think I mentioned this last week or maybe on another show where we mentioned it. Bruno Guimaraes isn't going to be playing in this game. They literally haven't won without him this season. Is he, is he confirmed as, as absent yet? Yeah, yeah, he's, he's suspended. Oh, yeah, that was the red card, wasn't it? Yeah, and the, uh, the League Cup, was it? Carabao yeah. Cup. Yeah. Yeah, so, and not only is he out, but now Joe Willock's got a hamstring injury. So, arguably their two best central midfielders aren't going to be playing. Obviously, Joe Linton's been fantastic in there as well. Uh, sure, Longstaff's still about, but they're going to have to fill that third midfield position. I don't know whether or not they'll have the bravery to try and be more forward-thinking, maybe look at trying to go 4-4-2 and have two wingers in there. I don't know. But it's an interesting problem that they have. The other thing, which might only be a tiny percentage point, but it might be a big one, they've got the Carabao Cup final the week after. And yes, they've got a whole week after that. But nobody wants to miss that game. And like I say, even if it's only a half a percent, even if it's only a half a second hesitation going into a tackle, that's something Liverpool can potentially take advantage of. However, with all that said, I think it's important to remember two things. One, Newcastle at home are of a very strong proposition. The way that they've been playing recently, it's been hard, it's been tough when they've been the overdogs. They've been expected to go into games and win. I think a game against Liverpool is still, they still can kind of use that underdog factor to get the crowd involved in a way that they haven't been able to in some of the other games. So that's going to be a big factor. We're going to have to deal with that. Saturday night in Newcastle, the fans are going to be absolutely bang up for it. And the other thing, Liverpool away from home. Like, we spoke about when was the last time we really saw a good performance was Man City. <laughs> when was the last time we saw a game like that away from home? Like, I can only think of Spurs away this season was the only time I felt like it was a really good performance. And that's why. I mean, we've only won two away games in the league all season. Like, yeah. And we're going up against a team who are very, very good at home. So it's going to be difficult, but there are reasons to believe that we can go there and get the job done. And if we do, then the knock-on effect that that will have on Newcastle might be telling. Because in this period of them tailing off, the only thing they've been able to hold on to, well, we aren't getting beat. We're not winning, but we're not getting beat. If they then get beat, how does that affect? Yeah, I think it's it's an insistent one. If I, I think we need to win the game, you see, that's what's that's what's difficult about it. I've got a glimmer of hope that it's possible now, purely because of the Everton performance. That was a proper display. That and if we can keep playing like that, we will win more games. Um, but I think because of the gap that's been established, I think we kind of have to take points from Newcastle really in this game, and we have to we have to win a fair amount of our games we're seeing now at the end of the season. But it's it's tricky. I do think new catching Newcastle is our biggest hope. I actually think Newcastle and Manchester United are roughly the same level, and beneath the surface, Newcastle have better numbers than Man United, but Man United have five more points in the bag at the minute. They have played the game more. Um but I just think we've we've probably got more hope to put the pressure on Newcastle and make them crumble on the hole with the shoulder a little bit. Um but that and again the problem is not just catching Newcastle. We have to catch Spurs, Brighton, Fulham and Brentford first. So But that's why this weekend could be massive. Because Fulham and Brighton are playing each other. And Spurs have got to play West Ham, which is a massive game for them. It's a massive derby. So yeah. if we win, 
that Fulham Brighton game to draw, and maybe Spurs don't get a result against West Ham, suddenly it looks a whole different. And then momentum starts to kick in. Because if Newcastle then, if they lose that game, and then they've got the final, the game, the first league game after the final is at the Etihad. So you can see a world where suddenly they've lost three games in a row and the world has fallen out of their season. So I'm not saying that's going to happen. I'm just saying you can see a world where that does happen. So there's positivity to be held, even if... And I think even if Liverpool draw against Newcastle, if they then get hammered at the Etihad, after having lost the final, I can have a bad effect. They win the final, then obviously that it can go the other way. Yeah. It's gonna be an interesting one to follow, really. Um but I, I don't know, I'll ask it again next week, mate, see see what the score was. <laughs> <laughs> according to we according to five thirty eight though, which we do reference every now and then, um City are nailed, Arsenal nailed, Manchester United are seventy four percent on to qualify for the Champions League. Newcastle forty three percent, Brighton twenty nine, Spurs twenty four, Liverpool twenty. So it could be worse. <laughs> but uh, I think they, they, they say we they say we lose out by four points. Is it? I mean, yeah, yeah. I, I, I think we can find an extra four points somewhere. Well, well, one of the positives that I suppose you could throw in there is this: just the the underrated massive boost of getting players back. And yeah. Liverpool obviously are now training with Jota and Firmino and Van Dijk, and just that can give you the real boost. You know, you know what I mean. So we'll have to see. Obviously, hopefully Liverpool can keep performing like they're in seven. Because if you perform like you're in seven every week, you will win games. The issue has been we've picked up the odd result, but the performances have not been there. The performance against seven was there, so yeah, let's hope we keep it. Uh, but Mo, thanks for joining us, mate. No problem, no problem. Always good to talk about good performances. And hopefully we'll have another two to discuss this time next week. Yeah, it's about time. We haven't had enough of those this season. But uh, yeah, thanks for tuning in and we will see you next week. You've been listening to the Analyzing Anfield podcast on the Blood Red channel.